Hello, everyone. Um, thanks so much for taking time to join us today for the Council of American Ambassadors educational event. This will be a nonpartisan discussion and education opportunity for us to learn more about the rights and the process for American voters abroad. And I'm here uh, very happily with David Byrne, who is um, the person who leads the federal voter assistance program um, in the US government. And this is a resource that has been so incredible for organizations, regardless of party, um, who are trying to get the best understanding of the rules, the laws, and the level of detail that they provide uh, on their website, which I encourage everyone here to uh, go to their website, um, for any questions that may exist that we don't cover here today. Uh, but this is meant to be a conversation and discussion. And uh, I am Bruce Heyman. I served as the US ambassador to Canada uh, during uh, President Obama's second uh, term. And uh, I was very involved with uh, the get out the vote effort, uh, being educated by the folks from FVAP and uh, getting out under uh, what many of you may fully appreciate and understand under Hatch Act rules of nonpartisan uh, education of American voters. And so with that, I've become passionate about this ever since. And uh, uh, I'm so glad, David, that you're here with us today to, to have this conversation, to educate us on, um, on the American voter abroad. Thanks for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, David, so uh, let's start with uh, who who's eligible to vote if you're an American citizen if you're outside the United States. Uh, well, that's well, that's an interesting question just to start right off because there is some complications. But basically, every U.S. citizen who is living overseas, provided they've established residency back in the United States, they can participate in the election. Uh, that's one of the biggest questions we get is about residency that for some voters, they, it's been a while since they live in the United States, they may not have an address any longer. You know, do I attach to that address? What address do I use? And that's why we spend all of our time educating them to say, use the last address you had before you left the United States. One of the items that is tricky is that for voters that have never lived in the United States, the states own that question about residency. I see. So about 35 states that do grant residency privileges through parents or from other, through other relatives. And we do feature some of that content on our site, but uh, that's the biggest challenge is recognizing that people have to have a physical location they can attach to for their U.S. congressional district. But they don't still have to have a house or an apartment or anything. It could have been 40 years ago and they lived on some block and that there's a Walmart on top of it at this point. But if they live there and they put in that address, that's what that's that's really what governs. Is that right? That's correct. And, and actually, we do run into that where an address was residential, zone commercial. At that point, we educate them and tell them to contact their election official because they may be able to put them in a, an address for the central office so they can still vote in the election. How long have Americans been voting from abroad? Oh, uh, quite some time. I mean, I think the, the biggest change was in 1986 with the passage of the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act. Uh, that's what established a number of privileges that we continue to implement. It's what established uh, the Federal Voting Assistance Program. It also established that uh, the president 
will designate an executive office head to lead this uh, for military and overseas citizens. It grouped both populations together and then uh, President Reagan assigned that responsibility to the Department of Defense. So that's how that all came about. We oftentimes get that question as to why is DOD involved with supporting overseas citizens? And that is why they, they group both populations together, but we rely heavily on a fantastic partnership with State Department. So you are a Defense Department employee? That's correct, yes. Okay, so the Federal Voter Assistance Program, um, as a result of this, this law that was created in the 1980s, um, which we now refer to as UOCAVA, is That's that right? right? Okay, Uniform, so. Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act. Okay, so this is an absentee voting process that's going on, and we we created a uniform process through this act, created the this office that exists, um, and so that's great. So, what what is this uniform process, and how to, how best would you describe it? Well, the best way as the responsibilities for us is that we prescribe a, a specific form called the federal postcard application that does two things. It registers and requests, registers a person to vote and requests an absentee ballot. So we always talk about it's a buy one, get one. You get, you get a twofer using the federal postcard application. because it It's not a postcard, right? It's not a postcard anymore. Uh, the, physical, the physical copy is a foldable postcard, a self-contained mailer, but everything now is electronic. And so uh, even though we call it that, um, it is still just, you print it off as a letter size application. But okay. um, that's the biggest value uh, in terms of streamlining is that all of the states will accept this. Uh, it's built so that we can, uh, if you fill it out in its entirety, uh, all the instructions are there you send it back to your state and it will automatically queue you up to receive absentee ballots for every federal election in a calendar, at least in a calendar year. Um, and so that's one of the biggest values that we've seen over the years, uh, trying to streamline that. You always get into this dynamic between um, federal versus state responsibilities, uh, but that's the, that's the primary intent, uh, is using the federal postcard application. And if you do it timely, 30 days prior to the election, you also become eligible to use the federal right and absentee ballot. So, so we'll come back to the right in in just a second. So. Um, and there are a number of sites that are out there that use this process, but I think if, I, if I've got this right, everybody, regardless of party, if you use another site, they still use your, your form that goes through. It's, it's really the, and so you could either go to fvap.gov or one of these other sites that may be out there that other groups are promoting. But at the end of the day, this process, this form has been established by your office. Right, and we, and we do, I mean, we're, we're kind of biased. We love our form more so than others, but it's mainly because of what comes with it. Uh, so we know the campaigns and, and the states all have their various absentee ballot forms or just overall ballot by mail applications. That's different than what we offer. And there are federal protections that include, you know, going back to 1986 and then various other reforms that came later. But it's the ability to, you know, you automatically qualify. Uh, it eliminates that first question on whether you're registered or not. You can also request your ballot materials electronically. And then beginning 45 days prior to each federal election, the election officials are required to start transmitting those ballots. So there are some real hard requirements associated uh, under federal law and protections uh, yeah. that are not otherwise available if you use just a, another type of form available through the state or local office. So the UOCAVA process gives you these protections. And I think you mentioned a really important point. So then when 
people are going through this and thinking, filling it out, you mentioned to request your ballot to be returned via email. And I think given the uncertainty of COVID, international mail services, and now even the US mail service, that asking for this back by email is provided as a, uh, in, the, in, in the law, right? Uh, am I, do I have that correct? That's correct. That was a, the most recent amendment was passed in 2009. It was a recognition that, uh, you know, overseas citizens, overseas military, the biggest challenge is geography, uh, the, the lead time required to participate in the election. So being able to send blank ballots to voters 45 days prior to the election cuts the overall transit time in half. Um, and that's one of the biggest benefits. It's, uh, it remains the, the and we'll get to it, I think, a little bit later on the return side, that gets a little bit more complicated. But definitely receiving blank ballots, you absolutely have the option to receive electronically using our form. So if I've got this right, you go to this federal postcard application, which is not a postcard anymore, but it, it, we still call it that. And you get a two for one. You get to register and request your ballot all at the same time and you fill it out, you put in your last address where you resided in the United States, and that's, it, it, that's where you vote. Because people all ask all the time, so I'm overseas, so do I just pick a state, or do I get to go, where do I get to vote? And uh, you, know, you go to this last residence where you last lived, that's where you are. Are, are there complications where you last lived? Like I just went to school there and then left, but my home was in a different state or how, how do you deal with the vagaries of where I last lived um, yeah, yeah. and those things? We deal a lot with that for on residency issues quite a bit. That's probably the most popular question we receive um, both from the active duty military side who you know change duty stations quite right. often. Uh, that's also true for overseas citizens, um, especially students who, who may be moving from time to time. Um, so there is not a hard and fast rule on voting residency. I mean, it's really a, a matter of looking at the oath that we require people to sign, attesting to their qualifications, affirming that they are a resident of that particular state, and ultimately what they can defend, right? So this is all that gets into some of the integrity issues, but it's really what the voter is comfortable asserting. Um, and making sure that they fill out the form in its entirety you know, in, in the appropriate manner. So not a hard and fast rule. It really is a matter of you know, what they can defend and what they can uh, provide documentation should they be challenged for some reason. But because of how much in advance this process is, you're recommending that people do this now, right? I mean, we're, the time is sands going out of the hourglass and waiting to the last minute if you're overseas uh, can be overly complicated. What is it about that 30 days you had mentioned that after 30 days, what, what happens then? Yeah, so we always, so in, the challenge for us is to focus at a federal level how to streamline things. And so in order to do that, we, we maximize success. And maximizing success is to make sure that people hit that 30 day, kind of think of that registration, vote, traditional voter registration deadline. So if you act early by October 3rd and submit your federal postcard application, you qualify to use the federal right and absentee ballot. One thing you quickly realize when conducting elections or being involved in elections in the United States, there's always exceptions to the rule. And there are some states that don't require you to have first applied for an absentee ballot before using the federal right and absentee ballot. 
Uh, but we want to make sure we're, we're lowering their overall risk, educating people in the most simplified manner. So it's the easiest for us is to say, get your FPCA, your federal postcard application in by October 3rd. Uh, and then wait for your official ballot. If your official ballot doesn't come in, then we've got some other options for you. But uh, stepping up and doing that first will then at least ensure us that you've taken an appropriate step and you're duly qualified to use the federal right and absentee ballot versus what then becomes a mixed bag where sometimes we have to deliver bad news. Um, we never deter people from participating uh, when we provide customer service. Um, but we do say, you know, you may be running into a high risk situation. There may be a challenge, it may be a problem with your eligibility, but let's go ahead and submit your materials and, and uh, see, see how things progress. You, you and I had talked a little bit beforehand about the percentage of people that actually succeed in this process relative to the voter participation in the United States. Um, what percentage number are you using? Uh, well, our, so part of our assessment, we're required by Congress to report voter registration participation rates for both military and overseas citizens. And so uh, it's taken us a number of years, but we've reported this number in 2014, 2016, and, I, and hopefully soon we'll be releasing 2018 data. Right now for overseas citizens, the participation rate's hovering at 6.9%. Um, so about 7%. 7%. That's what we're estimating. Now it is based on a statistical model approach. Right. Um, so as, you, as we gain uh, strength over the years with our research, we're hoping to refine that model. But uh, we try to drill in to say, what can we do at a pro federal program level to affect change, but also recognize that we are not a get out the vote effort. You know, it's all about raising awareness. What are the, the obstacles, uh, either infrastructure or otherwise, that we might be able to assist with? Uh, without, um, you know, engaging in a direct, you know, um, get out the vote effort, which is not really our purview. So, so David, 6.9%, 7%, for those of us who watch these things, um, that, that's a really low number. Um, and so you had taken a look at percentage diff between the U.S. participation domestically and internationally, and what what may be the reasons for that gap? Could you just address that a little bit? Right, so uh, we, in some of our research on our site, we talk about um, the obstacle gap versus the, the residual gap. The residual is the kind of the motivational factors uh, that a campaign might be able to assist with um, in their level of interest in the election. The obstacle gap was much more about um, people's perceptions about lack of confidence in the international postal system uh, for whatever country they're currently living in, uh, the lack of infrastructure, um, things of that sort, uh, their feelings of uh, involvement due to their physical separation. And I think that's one of the challenges we face is that when we report these numbers, they're based on known overseas voters. Uh, what we don't have a good read on and it remains a challenge is the unknown voters right. and what is, what is holding them back. So there's a lot of what we're trying to learn from a known population and then project it based on uh, what we would expect to see uh, when comparing it to the general uh, population back here in the States. And the breakdown that you saw between the gap between U.S. you know, outcomes and overseas outcomes, that differential over 7%, I think that you had broken down some of the gap of motivation versus these structural uh, problems. Um, right, there was a six, overall 65 point voting gap um, between the domestic population 
in the overseas population. Uh, and then we attribute 30% of that gap of the 65, 30% is the obstacle gap that we might be able to Im impact. Um, the remaining 34% is more about those individual motivation factors. Motivation. So if they can be motivated, that could change. That's one thing. And then the obstacle gap you're, you work on directly through um, the FVAP program. Okay, so you filled out the postcard, you got it all going, you did it all appropriately, you were accepted by the local registrar, and your ballot is sent to 45 days in advance of the election, no later than. They have, they have that 45-day requirement. If you requested it by email, it shows up in your email box, hopefully September 19th or thereabouts, you better start looking in your spam folder and everywhere else because it's probably there somewhere. And if it's not, then what do we do? Then you have, then what do we do? We didn't, we filled it out. We did the whole thing. And I, I you know, David, I don't have my ballot in my email box. What do I do? I really want to vote. Oh, wait, before we get to that, I'm sorry. One other question, returning the ballot, returning the ballot. Um, how, could you just describe the, the layout, the lay of the land of states that will allow you to email it back, states that will fax it back, states that want you to mail it back? I mean, it seems like a, a real a mosaic here. Uh, and a mosaic is a perfect description for what the states, uh, what that patchwork looks like. Uh, <laughs> That's the there's we have everything on our website and even when you you land on our page we'll walk you through all your state requirements. It varies very much by state. There are about 20 states that only allow you to send your ballots by uh, back through the mail. That's the only way they will receive them. Other states may authorize uh, mail or fax. Uh, they may have some exceptions or, or unique circumstances to authorize fax. So if uh, active duty military members in a hostile fire area or in a danger area serving our country, they might be able to use a fax, uh, whereas others may not. Um, and then others may authorize mail, uh, email, or fax, right? Or, and we use email interchangeably with online systems. Um, so all of that is featured on our site. And so what we do is we try to, we make sure we package that up. So depending on your state of residence, you know how to take action. But you can imagine that since 2016, the issue of cybersecurity, things of that sort, um, we recognize that the states own their systems. They have to certify the elections uh, and they're the ones who have to be willing to accept certain levels of risk, right? So we, we work closely just to monitor and report the news, raise awareness is our key metric uh, and how, you know, making sure people know how to take action. Um, so that, that's why we have really a mixed approach in the states. Uh, but back so to you. Go, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to get back to the flaw, uh, the federal right and absentee ballot. So wait one second. So when we looked at that, about half the states take email, thereabouts, you know, approximately. A, f a handful will do fax or hard ballot. And then about 20 states, as you've referred to, require this hard ballot return. And so <clears throat> that emphasizes, especially those states that have the hard ballot return, you know, you got to get going because we have a we have a mail service problem globally actually taking place as a result of a pandemic and now domestic issues. Combining those two, you really, you know, you can't wait till later in October because there's some probability that this might not count. Now, is it is it when it was sent or when it was received or is that state specific too? 
that also varies by state. Some states will have a postmark rule. I think most famously, and, and some of my background as a local election official before joining the department in 2010, um, you know, Florida in 2000, it received quite a lot of scrutiny and attention the 10 day period after election day for military and overseas ballots to come back in. So that varies by state. Uh, it's very important for voters to make sure they they have, they anticipate the lead time required to get that ballot back either by physical receipt by the, the, the deadline or postmarked. Um, and so we always are out there raising awareness through social media, all of our communication channels. October 13th is really the recommended time for all overseas citizens that we want to start encouraging ballots to be coming back. If they're not already on their way back by October 13th, all overseas citizens should be sending them back. Yeah. Okay. So. Now, now back to the question that I uh, prematurely jumped to. So uh, I went to my email box, no, no ballot. It's not there. Uh, really worried about this. And uh, uh, so now what do I do? Well, and that's where uh, DOD and, and others, it's all about contingency planning. And so we have our backup ballot, the federal right and absentee ballot. This traces its, its history all the way back to uh, war ballots in, in during World War II and even prior to that. Um, but it's the idea that you can leverage this. If you don't otherwise receive a ballot, you can write in your candidates. It basically looks just like the federal postcard application. It's a two-part form. It has the affidavit, very much like the application itself. Uh, you attest and affirm your, your eligibility and, and your status. And then uh, it has a ballot component that goes inside its own ballot secrecy envelope. You can indicate your list of candidates or your party affiliation. Uh, and then the election official, what happens is that you know, you take action, send it back based on what the state authorizes, you know, allows you to do. Uh, and if it's timely received, the election official will process it. They will hold all the federal right and absentee ballots because they're looking for that official state ballot to come back. They'd like right. to see it come back. Um, right. And if it doesn't, then they will can make sure that they count the federal right and absentee ballot based on the voter's intent. Um, and they ensure that only one of those ballots is, is accepted for counting. So important point. If you don't get it, you send in your federal write-in, and then you get it, you can still send in both because you're protected. You are not voting twice uh, under these provisions. Um, don't use these same rules back in your home state if you're living there, but this is a provision that you have this protection. Um, and just to clarify, a couple of questions have come in while we're chatting. Uh, one is, um, your site is fvap.gov. It has not only all of this detailed information and research and background and individual state rules, et cetera, but it's also the place you can go to do your federal postcard application and your write-in ballot. Is that correct? That's correct. So we got okay. we have both the fillable forms, but then we have our online assistance, just like your favorite income tax preparation software where you can walk through, complete the forms, and then at the end of that process, it's a completed PDF file that you can then uh, print, sign, and, and just follow the, uh, submit, the submittal instructions. Okay, so let's walk through now. We have the ballot. Uh, we received it on the 19th or your write-in ballot. You've printed it off. It's time to get it back to the United States. And um, so how, will we, can you address what's going on in U.S. embassies and consulates to, uh, because some of the folks here are asking questions of, uh, you know, do embassies and consulates, can they, can they get them back? Right. So this to kind of ties in, I don't know if you want to speak to it now in terms of COVID-19 and what we're, what we've been monitoring yeah. for global pandemic conditions. 
So back uh, operationally, just for your awareness, we typically go out in the field to our, the State Department locations, embassies worldwide, military installations worldwide. That's all been disrupted as of the end of February. But we've gone to virtual environment. Uh, we haven't missed a beat. Spreading the word and making sure people know how to take action. Part of that is premised on our partnership with United States Postal Service, Military Postal Service Agency, and State Department to understand what are the local conditions in each country. We have seen international postal operations disrupted. Uh, we have a landing page on ffap.gov slash COVID-19. Provides all of that, it links to international postal alerts. Uh, and one of the challenges we face is depending on, if you look at the heat map globally for where the pandemic is, is spiking, uh, they may actually have embassy operations shut down temporarily. Uh, the postal operations may be shut down. Um, and you watch it kind of progress through the globe, the world, in terms of who's, how they're responding. And so we've seen Europe disrupted. We've seen Central and South America disrupted. And to your point, it just underscores the need to take action early. For our embassies, um, what's available to them, we know. And one thing that the pipeline that we really rely on is the diplomatic pouch. So if voters, um, voters in each of these countries worldwide were stressing the fact that they need to uh, pay attention to the news, uh, their local embassy and consulate web pages uh, for the latest information on, um, they all will accept ballots uh, for return to the United States. Uh, if you're using the diplomatic pouch, there's also a postage paid envelope template on our site. So uh, rather than using international postal rates, you can actually drop it off at the embassy or consulate and they'll return it free of charge in the pouch. Um, those are all benefits that we'd like to see, but it is, it is critical based on the embassy operations. Um, and then some, some embassies we are hearing are allowing for in-country mailing to that embassy location. So for if an overseas citizen is not in immediate proximity or they cannot traverse from one area of the city to the next, we've heard that as well, um, they need to verify with their embassy, but that may be an option to them. Um, so we, we completely rely on our partners and they've been uh, wonderful stewards of this process for us and, and just being very responsive. Um, but that's definitely uh, one of the biggest challenges we're, we're monitoring uh, for this cycle. And it gets back to your point about the 20 states that only allow postal return. Uh, you can increasingly see that this is gonna be even more important for these overseas citizens, citizens to monitor you know, how they're gonna take action, be prepared and take action early. Yeah, because domestically, I think there's some new recommendations that if you're mailing in your ballot, you should do it at least two weeks before the election. So now if you're overseas and you need to get it back, there's more, all the more reason that you should on September 19th, when you get that ballot, it, unless you really don't know who you're voting for and you need more time. But if you know who you're voting for, don't let it sit there in your email box or on your desk. Just you got to get it going and you got to figure it out. And so your recommendation is if you want to use the embassy or consulates, you need to go to their website and see what they're doing at each individual, because this could change from this, the time we're even having this conversation right now, next week, the pandemic could be worse or better and the situation could change. So you've got to look at this really on September 19th or thereabouts then to figure out your game plan and getting it back. And you could use an international courier service, couldn't you? Can you go to FedEx or something? Is that, it's, it's expensive, but you could go right. there. That's always an option in lieu of, especially if you're not trusting the International Postal Service, um, not USPS, but the, the host country's postal service. Um, right. 
you can always use the contract carriers. Um, it's just that with the pandemic, if airport operations are disrupted, chances are the commercial carriers are also going to be disrupted. So um, that's also gets just back to the complexity and the challenge that uh, folks are facing. I would be remiss not to point out that our overseas military mail has continued to move throughout the pandemic yeah. um, because of the military supply chains, a little bit different um, and obviously much more within the control of the Department of Defense. So. Can, can American citizens use that? I mean, if they're near a base or, you know, if they're, you know, they don't have access to regular mail, the mail service isn't working, the consulates aren't taking it, and then there's a, a big military base down the street, can they do that? They should uh, contact the, the military installation and see if that is a level of service that they will offer at the front gate. Uh, for, for DOD affiliated civilians, military, their family members, anyone who's on the installation and has access to that military post office, they could certainly leverage that to return it. So uh, again, as much as we try to focus on the international, or sorry, the, the standardized approach, you can imagine that health conditions, they're subject to installation commander, right. uh, embassy conditions. Um, and just another note I wanted to point out was that uh, we've worked closely with State Department to ensure that as soon as they are opening back up in early phases, um, you know, with skeleton staff, things of that sort, that they are uh, ready to start accepting ballots for return via pouch. So they recognize the importance as well to make sure they're keeping that, that pipeline active. And how long does it take? I've seen a various, um, and you and I have talked a little bit about this on some embassies reporting extended period of time to get that pouch back. I mean, do, do we have any estimate about getting diplomatic pouches back to the US and how should citizens abroad think about that? I, I don't want them to think they could show up like a few days before and if the ballot has to be back on election day in some states that they're gonna get it there. Right, um, I, when, when people are looking at that, their, their scenarios, I would definitely encourage if their state authorizes an alternative for returning their ballot, they should probably explore that um, if the state, if they're locked in and they have to do it by postal or, and that's just what they prefer to do, um, then we're still tracking October 13th as that overall window. Yeah. Um, it, it, in the worst of the, the pandemic conditions, we know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know at least one embassy in particular was reporting eight to 10 weeks. Um, we've alerted them. Things have lifted quite a bit and that was in Europe. And now they're looking at two to four weeks which is about our expectation typically for an election window. Um, and uh, so that's what we'd expect continuing unless conditions worsen in particular countries. So- um, Does a counselor stamp that so that they know when it came in? I mean, yeah. is, there, is there some verification so when it shows back up in the US, that hard ballot, that they know that it came to the embassy or consulate on a certain day or how does that work? Yes, that's, that's critically important. So anytime they stamp the, the acceptance of those materials and then they come back through Dulles Airport, the election official can identify when it was submitted for return, uh, which is basically the equivalent of the postmark. So for those states that rely on the postmark rules, such as Florida, that's exactly the threshold they're looking for to, to make sure they can accept it and that it was not submitted after the deadline. Okay. Um, what, what am I missing here? What we, We've now talked through... Uh, the fe oh, by the way, the federal write-in ballot, if you're worried about the pandemic, if you've already applied, you haven't received your ballot, you've gone through the application process, you haven't received your ballot yet on September 19th, 
and you're sitting here, you're anxious. You're watching the news about postal delivery. You're worried about a second wave going in the fall. And you know the mail is at least working now. Is Can I, can I get that federal write-in ballot, print it off, and move it ahead? You can certainly, I, that's where we want to encourage everyone to focus on what is the standard rule, which is to request your ballot first. Right. Uh, you can certainly go ahead and request your ballot and then push in the federal write-in write absentee ballot if you so chose. Um, most states, they will just specify the election in which you're choosing to participate and submit that ballot. Uh, right. The reason I say that is because we still have some primary elections ongoing. That's true. Um, and so it gets very confusing for the election officials as they start receiving ballots um, that are intended for the, the general election and they're still, they are still supporting primary elections. Got it. They get mixed in. Uh, because it could result like Massachusetts in isn't it, ha hasn't had its primary yet and so you're sitting down and if you send in your general now it could be confusing to the election officials good point so it does it does make me a little bit nervous to take action this early um, but I understand that if, if that is a concern you know uh, it's always better to, to move early as opposed to hold September 19th um, and even September 1 is a good um, yeah yeah, go ahead and submit the application, be on standby for September 19th. That's what I would definitely recommend um, because you do have Florida and other states still doing their state primaries for, you know, U.S. House, U.S. Senate and things of that sort. And, and this write-in ballot, how strict are people in terms of, you know, signing the entire name of the candidate in detail? Can that get thrown out like some hanging Chad discussion that we lived all lived through that that, uh, uh, you know, is the intent, you know, if you use the sh Don or Joe, uh, you know, as opposed to full names. I mean, so how does that work? It, uh, the federal right and absentee ballot is premised on, on voter intent. and uh, actually traces its origin for submariners who had no other option other than to submit a right and uh, absentee ballot before they departed. Uh, not, oftentimes they would not have a list of candidates. So you can list the party affiliation, yeah, uh, you can list enough so that someone, uh, any layperson, could quickly and easily identify what your intent is. So nice. So it's voter intent is the absolutely. is the process, and that's under, which who governs that? Federal law is that federal, governed by? Right. Yeah, our federal right and absentee ballot uh, under federal law, they're required to treat it based on voter intent. Voter intent. Uh, and if you list even at the top of the ballot, if you list your party, they will treat. Uh, that almost essentially as a straight party ballot cast for all of those political party candidates, wow. uh, at least for federal office. And then in some states, they allow the federal right and absentee ballot for state and local contests as well. But you should look at the website or contact the local official to see if that is in fact the case. And right. um, you've got we, it. We oh. feature that on our site as well. Good. Um, what else? What are we missing? Uh, anything else? Uh, we've covered a lot here. This has been really great. Um, let me look and see if we have any additional questions, too. Um, has the State Department sent out a worldwide cable giving American citizen services instructions on how to help U.S. citizens who want to vote? Should U.S. citizens call them if they're open for help? Yes. Uh, well, I don't know about worldwide cable. They are definitely leveraging their mascot uh, messaging systems, their warden lists uh, to get the word out uh, and to, con to continue to message out into um, the overseas citizen community. So I know that they are doing that. 
I can't speak right. to the worldwide cable aspect, um, but they definitely should contact the embassy and consulate, verify their website, because I think everyone has got uh, somewhat of reduced staffing and that's always a concern. Um, but definitely check their website, know that you can do everything you need to do through our site, um, and then just verify through State Department what, what are they doing to accept ballots and to send them back. And that's, that's really the, the key message for overseas citizens. Uh, what if all else fails and, and you're sitting here in a location, the mail service has no international mail service, the embassy and consulates are shut down because of a pandemic, and you're in a state that says, you know, you have your email, it came, you printed it off, you're holding it, you filled it all out, and you're just sitting there going, now what do I do? What, what is, is there some kind of Hail Mary, like, just do this, not sure if it'll count for sure, but give it a go, or what, what do you do? I mean, I can easily see that happening uh, if we have anything that looks like the circumstances that we just went through coming in this fall. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, you kind of lost me a little bit in this scenario, but I, I think what keeps me up at night uh, is the notion that if there's a second wave and those, and you're from one of those 20 states that only Correct. person return, what are your options? Uh, there is no Hail Mary coming. Um, the states own, you know, the, the, the methods by which they will accept voted ballots uh, as part of their overall, you know, responsibilities to certify the election. Uh, we can do little to, and actually nothing to affect that, um, that process, at least not within the executive branch. So anybody who's on this call who knows a governor of one of those 20 states listed on the federal voter assistance program that is requiring hard ballots, somebody should get a hold of those those governors or to the secretaries of state or figure out if there's a, a path that if we wake up in September, October and American citizens, regardless of party or regardless of your red or blue state, can't get that ballot back, it would be good to have a a plan B for your state and to figure out how to, how to get that, you know, um, 30, 30 of our states will allow you to do some type of electronic delivery. And some states will even say fax, but send the hard copy in following it up. And so, you know, that that's an appeal to anyone here on this phone who knows anybody in those states. We do and they're, by the way, they're red. This is not a, a red or blue issue there is an equal number i think as i looked at it um states that are deemed to be republican or democrat etc this is this is a this is a federal issue among those states and we have seen uh states such as missouri i think made an adjustment for their primary election We're, we continue to monitor those things as we get closer to the general election and we'll be updating our content on our website um if there are any any changes to uh, what's authorized we work closely with some of our partners, the council of state governments. We work closely with the state election directors and secretaries of state. So they've been alerted to this situation and I know they uh, wanted to make sure their colleagues were alerted to it. Uh, they understand that we are very limited at the Department of Defense as to what we can do. Um, so we're all about education, awareness, and uh, but that is what keeps me up at night in terms of, are we gonna have the second wave? Where will, be the sec where will it be occurring? And what will be the level of disruption? So at the end of the day, you can't figure that out. We can't figure that out. So get your ballot in ASAP. Absolutely. David.
anything else? Any other questions from anyone? No other questions, open questions. Um, anything, any, any summary remarks that you'd like to bring in? Anything we might have covered that we didn't cover? I think uh, I, I think this is great, and I, I just really uh, thank you for for your service and and uh, all of your colleagues. I, I would just uh, I you know we're all about raising awareness. So the more we can get the word out about our mission, our website, uh, we've got various outreach materials. So uh, to the extent uh, I know everyone's very involved with various groups, associations, uh, legacy contacts in various countries. Uh, to continue to help get that word out, leverage our materials free of charge on our website. That's what they're there for. Uh, and just know that we take our mission very seriously under the Hatch Act and, and providing nonpartisan assistance um, and leverage our resources. That's what they're there for. So um, having so us- what, You know, just following up on that. Um, sorry, we got another question asking a follow-up to the previous question. Is there any way we can get the State Department to send a worldwide cable out to everybody and saying, hey, this is coming up and this is important and you should have procedures in place to handle these things? Or how, how is it, it, do you cajole them into doing this? Or do, is there a process that they, they've done this? Because I know in years past when I served and I know other administrations, there was a there was a definitely a worldwide cable message of this is this is what you do. Yeah, I think so. When I, when I hear that, I know that they have sent out a cable to all posts. Okay. Warning uh, them about and just like when I was describing earlier about phase zero, phase one, or phase two, depending right. on how they're recovering in the pandemic uh, and staffing levels. The, in the earliest phases, I've seen the guidance is to make sure that they are accepting uh, ballots for for insertion into the diplomatic pouch. So. The posts are on alert. Um, the posts are also varying, you know, exactly what level of service and what are their hours for accepting ballots. Do they have a drop box outside the embassy location? Um, that's why we continue to push to say verify with your embassy webpage under voting assistance or consular affairs right. uh, services, and then you'll be able to find the information you need. But yeah, maybe I misunderstood. The worldwide cable has gone out. I know the post okay. is working it. Uh, and then they also use the mascot messaging system and warden list to get it out to the greater uh, overseas citizen, citizen population who are not with State Department directly. Thanks. I'm sorry I interrupted your summary statement and <laughs> okay. you were doing such a good job. I got this other message that came in, but, but you know, let me, let me bring this together. Everyone on this call has served overseas at one level or another. And so thank you all for your service, David, yours as well. This is an important time uh, for democracy and for voting. And again, regardless of your background, your party, your personal interest, we shouldn't be encouraging Americans to participate in the voting process globally. And it's set up, it's there, it's been built for them under federal law and protections. And David and his team have been dedicated to this for many years. And so why not reward, reward your citizenship? Your, your vote is your voice as it's always been. And so we're just here to educate you, but also encourage you to get Americans. I'm encouraging you to get Americans to, to get out and vote and participate in this election uh, coming up. Let's see if we can get more than 6.9% of our Americans living abroad to to participate in this and let's double or triple that. And the best way to do it is you're reaching out to American citizens abroad and encouraging them to register and get their ballot and get it back 
I mean, some the I think the largest reason uh, why votes weren't counted after people got was they didn't get it back or didn't get it back on time. And so, you know, this is particularly important this year. So thank you all for all of your time today. David, thanks for this. And thanks to the, the Council of American Ambassadors for hosting uh, this conversation today. And um, we look forward to many more conversations with the Council. And David, I'm sure you and I will be talking over, over the months ahead, uh, continuing to get educated um, on the, the voting process. But thanks again, everyone, uh, for participating today. Thank you.